Are we an even amount away from the microwave? I feel, or the microwave? I don't recall <laughs> this is a microwave. For some reason, I have now called the microphone a microwave twice today. I don't know. Anyway, hi guys. I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we are here recording Lost in the Woods. And today, we are recording our episode in the bunker. Which is a different room than we usually record for yeah. those of you who have been here for, for a while. Who haven't been here for the whole time. <laughs> Normally, we do have a recording office, kind of, that we use. But it's a really big room. It has a fridge in it, and the fridge turns on and interrupts us. So basically, the fridge is driving us crazy, and we can't yeah. handle it. And we, we keep turning the fridge off. But... But but then we forget to turn it back on, and the ice all melts, and there's giant... And then we get in trouble. <laughs> there's giant puddles we of water. <laughs> so we've done it, I think, four times now where we have forgotten to turn the fridge back on. But I and swear, every time I'm like, I'm going to remember to turn the fridge on. And then every time we're done recording, I'm like, I'm getting out of here. I can't sit anymore. I want out of this room. <laughs> so we actually think the sound might be good in here. We're going to try it out today. Let yeah. us know what you think. Let us know if it sounds better than our last episode. So how's everybody doing? We are doing good today. Maddie just woke up, which she normally wouldn't be up this early if she didn't have to be. So today we are bringing you a very controversial case, I guess. Yep, for Australia. This is a case that divided, from what I can tell, quite drastically Australia. So if you're from Australia, you may or may not know. I actually didn't know this case. Really? I didn't. So I've heard, for all of you out there who have not heard the term, a dingo's got my baby or a dingo ate my baby, whatever. I think dingo ate my baby is what I know. (laughs) Which is not what was actually said. But this is the case of Azaria Chamberlain, which is that case. Now, I've heard the term before. I've never heard it actually used in an effective sentence in any way, shape, or form, but I am familiar with the term. Mm -hmm. From everything I can gather, America seems to really like this term. I don't know why. It's very bizarre. And the fact that it is even used in a joking or a mocking way kind of pisses me off because I think most people who use it maybe don't understand or don't know the entire case or don't know the tragedy of this case. And why is the term a dingo ate my baby then? It just kind of morphed into that. I don't know. Okay. But as far as I can tell, and maybe some of our Australian listeners can let us know, this is the official term that was said. This is what's in the court documents. This is what, from everything I can come up with, is the actual saying. If you know anything different, that's what I found. But the term that I had heard before was a dingo ate my baby. That is that is also the term that yep. I have most commonly heard is a dingo ate my baby. And just so you guys know, in Australia, we have never used that term in any way, shape, or form. And I've never heard anybody use that term either. So I know it's like a thing that everybody in America allegedly uses this term or jokes around with this term. But I've actually never heard it. Right. And I had never even heard anybody talk about this case. I just knew of the term. And that could be, too, because there was a movie made about this case. Really? Yeah, it's got Meryl Streep in it. Yeah, I've never seen it. But maybe that's why the term is more commonly known in America is because of the movie. Also, we don't have dingoes here, you guys. So it's kind of a word I think that Americans for some reason find funny. It's a wild dog. But in Australia, they call them dingoes. To my knowledge, dingoes are like stray dogs. 
It's not a stray dog though, it's a wild dog. It's not just like people's dogs that ran away are dingoes. It's like an actual type of dog that is wild. I would compare it to a coyote. Yes. That's what, it looks like a less straggly coyote. Yeah, coyotes are a little more mangy here than what the dingo looks like there. They're actually pretty. So, like we said, this is the story of Azaria Chamberlain. It is kind of a tough one. There's a child involved in it. So, prepare yourself for that. Beware of that. So, we're going to be talking about the Chamberlain family. So, we have Lindy and Michael. This is the mom and dad. Michael's actually a minister for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He did a lot of traveling for this job. They moved around a lot for this job. They also have a six-year-old named Aiden and a four-year-old named Regan, both boys. So they have their two boys, and when they got pregnant again, they were really hoping for a girl this time. Enter in Azaria Chantel Chamberlain. So she was born on June 11, 1980. Oh, this case is old. Yeah. I didn't know it was this old. Yeah. And thanks a lot, because that's about the time that I was born. (laughs) This case is really old, just well, like you, Mom. Well, it's not really old. It just happened in the 80s is not that old, but it's just older than I thought it was. Okay, gotcha. She was such an easy baby, and she was given the nickname Bubbles. Yeah, and from what I read, this happened. She was, as a baby, she would blow Bubbles. And I think the day she was born, she blew, like, a little bubble, like a little spit bubble, and that's where the nickname came from. After her six-week checkup, she was described as fit, healthy, with a direct and knowing smile. On August 13th, 1980, she was nine weeks old. The family had headed out on a road trip. They planned to visit sites and camp along the way. So they were in an area that was about 160 kilometers from their home. And this area was known as the Red Center, which is about almost 100 miles here. And also we realized that we should just be doing kilometers and meters and all that here. We don't understand why we don't. So when they were out, they planned on taking lots of pictures. Michael was very passionate about photography. Yep. They had also camped with their boys already when they were babies. So they were experienced at camping with babies and families and children. They were not nervous about taking their nine-week-old baby out camping. And neither would I be. I have taken my children all camping when they were babies. So this is not a crazy, unusual thing. It is very easy to camp with an infant, or at least it has been for me, especially if you start them at a young age. On August 16, they headed to Uluru in the Northern Territory. This area is also known as Ayers Rock, and it's a sacred place to indigenous people, but has become a very popular camping area. And the Ayers Rock is this big, flat, cool-looking, huge desert rock. It's actually really neat, and a lot of people go there to specifically take pictures of it, to climb around on it, things like that. You camp on top of the rock? No, no, no. They're camping at the base of the rock, basically. So the campground is down at the base of the rock. But this is what people come here to see is this rock. I gotcha. They're going to be staying at Ayers Rock Campsite. So dingoes are very common in this area. They do travel in packs of up to 10. That's a good size pack, actually. They lived in cave-like layers, and they hunted at night. Cave-like layers? Yeah, that's what they're called. They live in a Layer. layer. I know. I like that they live in layers. I know. And like we said before, a lot of them have like red to tan fur. And then I guess there's black ones too, but I've never seen a black one. Red or tan seems to be the common in this area. 
and they planned on staying there for three days, which is kind of the perfect amount of time to camp, by the way. They did get in later than expected, and there were already hundreds of campers there. So this is a big campground. They found a site near the back just in case Azaria cried throughout the night, because you never know. Sometimes the first couple nights in a tent or out sleeping in a different environment, there can be crying. Although my children have always passed out like the dead when camping. There was a spot next to the sand dune called Sunrise Hill. This was a popular place to watch the sunrise. So like rise over the rock. People would go there specifically to watch the sunrise and to take pictures of this rock. It was dark by the time they settled and they went to sleep right away. On August 17th, 1980, during breakfast, they introduced themselves to other campers, which is very normal for those of you who don't camp. Uh, yeah, you get to know the campers around you, you hang out at fire pits, you drink together. So then they piled into their car to go sightseeing. Lindy had been there as a teenager and she wanted to replace some of her faded pictures. Yeah, so she had old pictures of this area that she wanted to replace with new, better ones, especially with her husband being a photographer. They spent pretty much all day out and about. They returned to their campsite that evening. Lindy bathed the children. She dressed Azaria in a diaper or nappy, as it's called in Australia. All their words are better than ours. A singlet, or a onesie as we call it here, a white jumpsuit, a knitted matinee jacket with pale lemon edging, and then she also put booties on her. So Regan, who is their four-year-old, was tired and they had put him to bed in the tent. At 6.30, the rest of the family joined some of the other campers at the communal barbecue. Okay. Also very common. So Greg and Sally Lowe chatted with the family at this barbecue. At 8 p.m., Lindy announced to the group that it was time she put Bubby down, which is Azaria, Bubbles. Bubby, yeah, yeah. yeah. She took Azaria with Aiden in tow down the path to the tent. Their tent was partly visible from the campsite. Where the barbecue was, I assume. Right, yes. So basically, they're at the communal barbecue area, and they can see part of their tent at their campsite from that barbecue area. Yeah. Also, my thing is is that I feel like when camping, you're in a very safe place, it feels like, when safe you're camping. Safe environment, yes. So I feel like we went down to the river several times and left the younger children sleeping. Absolutely. So it is a safe area, and the at least here, our campsite's are pretty big. There's a lot of space. You have your stuff spread out everywhere. Like it kind of feels homey and it kind of feels safe. There's like a sense of security that you have with going to the river or going to the bathroom if your campsite has bathrooms and leaving your children. So I don't think that this is unusual that they were going to leave their children in the tent. Well, no, because you would be able to hear them from the barbecue area. Yeah. Okay, she was seen kneeling down to enter the tent. Greg saw Lindy emerge a little while later and walk over to the car. About 10 minutes later, she returned to the barbecue area with Aiden in tow. Again, so Aiden followed her down to the tent, but then now Aiden is coming back Aiden's with like, her. Aiden's like, what, seven? Aiden's the six-year-old? So that sounds about right, just kind of following mom around. She was preparing him some baked beans. When he heard a whimpering sound, he said, I think Bubby's crying. Sally Lowe also said that she heard something that sounded like a baby. Lindy was sure that the baby was asleep, but Michael insisted that she goes and checks. She returned to the tent, and she yelled a short time later, 
my God, my God, a dingo has got my baby. That's the saying, right? And oh my gosh, how terrifying to get to your tent and realize that your baby is not there. Reagan was still sleeping in the tent, but Azaria's basket was empty. You guys. Which is I can't. Yep. So she was basically Aiden sleeping in the tent. And then at the base of where he's sleeping, she has a little basket. Okay. Yeah. And that's where, which is what I use. I wouldn't call it a basket, but it was like a bassinet yeah, is what yeah, we would yeah. call that here. That's what I used for camping as well. What she's saying is that the dingo went into the tent and just took the baby without waking up her four-year-old. Yep. So when asked which way the dingo had gone, she pointed toward the sand dunes. Her husband, Michael, and Greg Lowe started scouring the area, but by now it was basically pitch black. Okay. Several campers came to their aid. A torch was lit and the search continued. When asked how she knew a dingo had taken her baby, she said that she had seen one coming out of the tent. She actually thought it had a shoe in its mouth because it had its head down and was kind of shaking its head a little bit. And she said that initially she thought that it had one of Michael's shoes in its mouth. I don't know why she assumed shoe, but that's what the fleeting thought in her head was. Drops of blood were noticed on the ground of the tent. So there is blood. Track marks were followed to an imprint on the ground. There's paw track marks outside and around the tent. One of the rangers actually follows these tracks to an area in the sand dunes. And there's an impression on the ground where it looks like something was put on the ground there. They believed it looked like a woven pattern. The theory is that it's the baby's matinee jacket. I didn't know what a matinee jacket was. We don't call anything a matinee jacket here, but from what I can tell, it's like a knitted sweater kind of. So Lindy had said that she laid Azaria down with six blankets and a rug at the feet of her basket. She said that she had made it kind of like a cocoon around her face because it can get really cold at night. So she kind of bundled everything around, leaving just her face exposed. She said that Aiden had kissed her on the forehead before crawling into bed himself and that he had complained of being hungry and she'd convinced him to come eat some baked beans. He crawled back out of the tent while she went to the car to get the beans and can opener and then they headed back to the barbecue area. So this left just Azaria and Regan in the tent, both sleeping. She left the tent flap open since she had planned to head to bed soon herself. I would never leave a tent flap open, but that's just because of mosquitoes. I was going to say we are psychotic about closing our tent doors, but it's not for safety reasons. It's because of mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are like hell. Like we said before, Lindy told police that she had seen the dingo coming out of the tent with its head down, like maybe it had something in its mouth. The constable, which I think is, is a police a police officer, yeah. noticed blood on the floor and the paw prints and drag marks around the tent. So there had been multiple sightings of dingoes at the campsite and in that area. And the Chamberlains were actually storing their food in their car in order to avoid attracting them. So it's like a big thing. The reason, and we'll talk about dingo behavior later, but you, it's just like here at campsites, you do not keep your food in your tent. You do not keep your food out in the open. All food is stored yeah, bears. and put away as to not attract bears. So here it's to not attract dingoes. If you remember when she was leaning into 
the tent and then she got up and was seen going to the car, that was actually to get a can of baked beans for Aiden, who was going to go to sleep, but said he was hungry. She had actually gone to the car to get the baked beans. So they were storing all of their food in their vehicle. And earlier in the day, the family had visited Fertility Cave at the base of Uluru. While there, Lindy had pointed out a dingo at the top of the rock watching them. Oh, you guys, she would later say that it was like the dog had been casing the baby. Also that day, a dingo had followed Sally Lowe as she took food scraps to the trash or rubbish bin. So what I'm getting now from this is that dingoes are not scared Okay, people is... normal dingo behavior is that they are skittish and scared of people. However, dingoes at this campsite did not behave that way because they have been put in an environment where humans have fed them, have left trash out, have created an environment that's constantly visited by people who are feeding, throwing scraps, are leaving trash out. They're yeah. creating a very enticing environment for a dingo to come to. There were actually signs in the bathroom at this campground saying, do not feed the dingo, danger, dingoes in this area. They had, they had signs posted at this campsite about that. Perfect. Michael had even thrown a crust of bread to one as he prepared dinner. The Habby, I think it's Habby family, were eating dinner around 8 p.m. when a dingo approached their van door and they even took a picture of it. So this is that same night. Billy and Judy West, who were at the campsite next to the Chamberlains, thought they had heard a dingo growling shortly before they heard Lindy yelling about a dingo having her baby. Okay. 300 volunteers formed a human chain to search the desert. Aboriginal trackers followed the tracks to a road where they lost the trail. They deduced that based on the tracks, the dingo had been carrying something. The Chamberlains did remain at the campsite during the search. They believed that if their daughter had survived the dingo's attack, that she surely would not last long in the cold desert night. Which is super sad that they have this <sighs> very realistic thought process. Well, and there's blood in the tent, right? Like, they know she's at least injured. And she's nine weeks old. Heartbreaking. This is just heartbreaking. If I ever hear anybody use the term, a dingo's got my baby, in a joking way... I'm going to slap them in the face, just so you know. So Aiden, who is their four-year-old, had told other campers that a dingo had taken his sister and she was now in the dog's tummy. So Lindy told search parties that she thought that they were searching in the wrong areas and that they should be checking under bushes nearby. She said, I will have to live with this the rest of my life. And I don't want to think that the baby had been out there and simply because we didn't look in the right place that it would die. Her and Michael did disappear for about 15 to 20 minutes in the area that she had indicated to searchers. So they kind of took a walk and went and did some searching on their own. Around 1.30 a.m., the search was called off due to lack of visibility. And the Chamberlains were persuaded to go stay in a hotel room that night, which, nope, I wouldn't have done that. There's no way I could have left. So at 5.30 a.m. the next morning, the search resumed. Several animal hairs were found on Azari's basket and blanket, and there were blood stains on several items. These items were a sleeping bag, a mattress, a parker, a raincoat, and there were also blood stains on her blanket, and it was torn like it had been bitten. And there were also blood sprays on the outer walls of the tent. 
Azaria weighed four and a half kilograms, which is about 9.9 pounds. In the months leading up to her disappearance, there had been six people that had been treated for wild dog bites at Uluru. The day before, three children had been attacked by dingoes. The park had recently even sought permission to start shooting the animals. I mean, at that point, if it's attacking children, I mean... Which is not the fault of the dingo in this situation. They are in their environment, which is being invaded by humans. Yeah. Which is causing more issue than not, I think. So after checking into the hotel, the Chamberlains did not rejoin the search efforts. Which, I think this is one thing that starts to bother people about this case. Yeah, and for me, I can totally see why this is an issue because with most cases, with with I think just about every single case that involves any kind of family member, significant other, parents with missing children, all that sorts of things, people do not like how other people react with grief and other things like that. Someone yeah. can always find something wrong. And you and you never know. But I did watch some interviews with Lindy and she does behave in an odd manner. Not because of the situation, but because I think that's just her personality. So when you look at the way she talks or the way she reacts or interacts, I think that she's maybe just an odd person. And I'm not saying, I mean, we don't, we don't know. We don't know the truth about anything. We're just speculating at this point. Yeah. I do think it's kind of strange that they didn't rejoin search efforts just because I feel like most parents would not stop searching. Or one parent, maybe. Because remember, they have two little kids. Yeah, which I can totally see. They might not have wanted to leave their traumatized other children. That could be why they didn't rejoin. But we really don't we know. We don't know. We don't know why they didn't rejoin. And this is what they said. So they said that after two nights, they believed that there was no way their daughter was still alive. And they decided to leave the Northern Territory. That's where I start to have a bit of a... Issue? A yeah. bit of an issue. On August 19th, they headed home. They stopped on their way home to take photos. Yep. This okay. also bothers some people. At this point, people are starting to wonder about the behavior of the two. And Lindy's statements came into question. There had been some conflicting reports. I feel like there are always conflicting reports with anything. Right, well, and some of the conflicting things were... Initially, she didn't mention that she had seen something in the dingo's mouth. That was something that came up later. Okay. So, I can see how people would see that as a discrepancy. To me, that's not a big deal. I mean, your baby just went missing, but that is one of the things. Some experts started to speculate rather or not a dingo would have taken the baby. Or could have taken the baby. Because no child had ever been reportedly killed by a dingo. After three days, it was announced that there was no chance she would still be alive. Dingoes in the area started being shot and their remains sent in to see if they had consumed human flesh. That might be a slight overreaction, but... That started happening. On August 24, 1980, one week after she went missing, a family staying at Uluru went for a walk. They spotted a jumpsuit and a diaper. The jumpsuit had visible blood near the neckline. The buttons were undone, or most of the buttons were undone. There was a singlet or a onesie inside also covered in blood. They did not touch them and drove to the police station. Police went to the site 
which was also near a known dingo lair. I like that they're called lairs. I know, I do too. The police officer picked up the jumper and also found two booties inside them. Yeah, and then after he touched the clothing before taking a picture of it, he tried to put them back how he had found them. The man that found them and the constable had different opinions about the state of the jumper when it was found. And this difference was whether or not the buttons were buttoned, undone, or partially buttoned. One sleeve was torn and the neckline seemed to be torn or cut. There were animal hairs, but no animal saliva found on the clothing. But there had been rain in the days leading up to this find. This was about five kilometers from the campsite. Which is about three miles. So, very easy to cover, right? Her parents, Lindy and Michael, they actually heard about the discovery of the clothing on the news. Two weeks after the disappearance, a statement came out from a doctor that Lindy did not act like a normal mother and seemed to not take care of her baby. She also had the infant dressed in all black at the time of the visit, which I have a few issues with this statement, which we'll talk about later, but I've seen this black dress, by the way, and it's actually really cute, and it has red strings and red on the booties. She made a lot of her kids' clothing. This was not a dark, drab dress. Also, when... Personally, from personal experience growing up with a mother who just doesn't like color. Doesn't like <laughs> color. She just doesn't do color. You end up with children who end up not wearing a lot of color because their well, mother dresses them, buys their clothing, picks out what they like. Right, but Azaria did actually wear a lot of color, but she had this one black dress which actually belonged to Aiden. It had been a dress that he had. I don't know if they why they wear dresses, but I know for baptisms, boys will wear, like, gown-type things, but I'm not really sure. But she said she had actually made it for her son, and then it became a hand-me-down to Azaria. But this same doctor said that he had looked up the name Azaria out of curiosity and found that it meant sacrifice in the wilderness. Does it really? No. It means blessed of God. And he said that he read this in a book, which could not later be found. Naturally, because it's probably not real. If I had to say, I feel like this just sounds like a load of... Well, and also her six-week checkup, the doctor had said a totally different thing. So I don't know what doctor this was that said this. I don't know if it's the same doctor who wrote something different in her chart. It's very confusing, though. I don't know. Also, and we'll talk about this later, but Seventh-day Adventist was not very common in Australia at the time. And so people believed that maybe they sacrificed children or something like that. What wasn't common? Seventh-day Adventist, which is the religion that they are. Some police believed that the tears looked more like scissor cuts, and they were also unable to track down anyone at the campsite who had actually physically seen Azaria. No one had seen the baby at all? At this time, police are unable to track down anybody who physically saw the baby. Well, that does not look good. That does not look good. However, campers have dispersed by now and left. But names of the campers were not collected at the time of the disappearance. Also, they got there at night, set up their campsite, went straight to bed, woke up the next morning, left sightseeing, 
and then came, came back, back for a small barbecue. I assume Azari was not up for very long before well, they put her down. People said that they had seen Lindy holding a bundle that they assumed was the little girl, but she was wrapped up in blankets. Also doesn't look good. Also doesn't look good. The clothes that were found, guess where they were near? The fertility cave. Where fertility the cave where the family had hiked that day. Not looking good. Not. That one doesn't look good for the dingoes. I don't know. So. I don't think that one looks good for either of them. It really doesn't. I know. As you can see, speculation is already starting just, and splitting at this point. Don't know how to feel yet, but. Well, it's going to get much worse. Much more and complicated. And much more complicated. Okay. So on September 2nd, it was announced that a hearing would be held. This was to ascertain the facts around the girl's disappearance. Police also obtained a pair of track pants and a sleeping bag from a dry cleaner near the Chamberlains. A friend had actually taken them in after the family had returned from their trip. Because I could see if the family is grieving and they don't want to deal with their stuff. That a friend is helping unpack their camping stuff. Remember, speculation is going crazy. So zoos started testing what would happen if they took meat, put it in diapers, and were to try to see if it would be in a similar or torn or ripped up in a similar fashion as Azaria's. Some found that things were similar and others found that they were just torn to shreds and completely different. So specialists are going to start flying out of the woodwork, you guys. Lindy did refuse to be hypnotized. So they wanted to hypnotize her to see if she had actually seen the baby in the dingo's mouth and things like that. But naturally this was against her religion. Hypnosis, especially back in the 80s, right? would be considered a form of witchcraft to most, most religions. religions at the time. The white matinee jacket with yellow trim was the only item that had not been discovered. At all of this current information, the nation erupted with theory. Had they killed Azaria? Had one of the boys killed her? Was she a sacrifice? The family, and especially Lindy, was tormented by people. She was called a witch. People were driving by their houses. People were calling them murderers. I mean, yeah. people went crazy, which if they think she killed their child, I can kind of understand. But I mean, you just don't know. Remember that black dress that Azaria had too? She even had a matching one that she had made to wear with her. So it was black and it had red on it, just like Azaria's dress did. I just don't see the dress as being any kind of relevant. Well, and maybe maybe putting black on your children in Australia is more taboo. Here, or, here that wouldn't be very weird. Yeah, or maybe it was something to do with their religion is why it was so... I have no idea. No. A big deal is made about this black dress. So if you know why, Australia I listeners... I would love to know why this know. black dress is such a big deal. Because in my mind, I just don't see how it's relevant. But it comes up multiple times. I'll post a picture of it too, but... Okay. December 15th, 1980, the first inquest opens in Alice Springs. What is an inquest? So it's like a trial, kind of. It's like a mini trial to determine possibly what happened to Azaria. Gotcha. Okay. So the tent was tested, and they could not determine if it came up as human or animal blood. Right. So remember, we're in the 80s, so DNA testing is not what it is today. It's a little rocky, yeah. But there is blood, but they can't tell if it's human or animal blood on the tent. Because remember, this tent has been used multiple times over the years. Yeah. 
Also, dingo behavior was analyzed. On February 20th, 1981, coroner Dennis Barrett finds that the dingo killed Azaria, but that someone had later interfered with the clothing. Yeah, so basically he believed that she had been killed by a dingo, but he also believed that the clothing was not left in that condition by a dingo. And a coroner in Australia is different than a coroner here, right? So a coroner here only deals with the body, only deals with the evidence on the body and to do with the body and determines the cause and manner of death. In Australia, a coroner investigates and does research and actually has a much bigger role, almost like an investigator would have here. Okay. So if anybody's wondering why this coroner is speculating about clothing, it's because coroners don't just deal with the body. The body in Australia, they have other roles as well. Gotcha. He concluded that neither parent was responsible for the disappearance of the baby. They thought that it was possible that a human could have contributed based on the clothing being, quote, cut. They had also believed that her clothing had been buried due to the dirt and vegetation on it. But I got an issue with that. Also, I have some issues with that. And even if the clothing had been buried, is it not possible that a dingo buried it and then it was later dug up? We don't know. We don't know. Questions that we had, though. I do not know. Okay. Police did not agree. They announced that the case would not be closed, but would also not be pursued without new evidence. Right. So basically, they're saying, we kind of disagree with this coroner. We think that something fishy is going on here. But without new evidence, there's really nothing we can do about it. But wouldn't you know it, later that year, a British scientist, British, not Australian, by the way, if you didn't catch that, submitted new information. He believed that the jumpsuit had been cut with scissors. He also believed he could see a small adult handprint in the blood on the jumper. And I say he believed because not everybody believed that this was a handprint. He did not believe that a dingo was involved because apparently he's a dingo expert now. A lot of people did take issue with this scientist because I think I read somewhere that one person said, well, I didn't know that they had British experts on dingoes. This guy's basically getting involved. But when you have two experts who have very different opinions, this happens a lot in this case. People either believe it's scissors or it's teeth that cut this jumper, right? There's going to be a lot of back and forth as we go through the inquest on this case, by the way. I love it. So on September 19, 1981, Just over a year after her disappearance, it was announced that they were reopening the investigation. So the Chamberlain's car was seized for forensic testing along with other items that they had had with them. Remind you, this is a year later. So a sticky substance was found under the dashboard, which was believed to be a sugary drink. Right, and it wasn't dry all the way, which is why they thought it was a sugary drink of some kind, because if it was blood, it would have been dry by now, basically. They found areas of the car that appeared to be blood stains on and underneath the passenger seat. The interior door handles, the console underneath the dashboard, which was allegedly blood spray. They also found items that appeared to have blood on them, which was a towel, Michael's camera bag, and a pair of nail scissors. Yeah, so remember, DNA testing is not what it used to be. They also seized a small coffin that Michael had used for an anti-smoking campaign at work. This had nothing to do with the case, but as you can imagine, people went crazy, crazy hearing that. about that. 
the average person doesn't have a child-sized coffin in their house, especially a year after their daughter has died or gone missing, right? So I can kind of understand people being like, what? He had a baby coffin? Maybe not even understanding why he had a baby coffin. November 18, 1981, it was announced that a new inquest was ordered. A new coroner oversaw this inquest. And wouldn't you know it, he believed she was guilty. So on December 14, 1981, the second inquest begins. Tests were done on the blood. Not DNA testing, though, you guys, because we don't have DNA testing. But Joy Kume, who tested the blood, she was specifically looking for fetal hemoglobin, which is a protein that develops during pregnancy, and it will persist for up to six months after birth. She reported that she had found fetal hemoglobin in 22 places, including the camera bag and nail scissors. After conducting the tests, as per regulation at the time, the samples were destroyed and a report was written. Okay. Yep. Have some issues with that, yep, but... Don't like the, them being destroyed. Yeah. The only thing that was 100% confirmed was the blood in the tent was confirmed to be Azaria's. Which, doesn't this add up with the dingo taking the baby? Oh, just wait. Because <laughs> I feel like... Okay. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like it's... <laughs> no, just wait. It gets It gets. It gets wild. wilder? It gets wilder. Man, this is getting real... Okay, so the pants that were dropped off at the dry cleaner and were seized by the police had stains on them, but they were unable to determine whether or not they had blood on them. Okay. Lindy, by the way, at the time of Azaria's disappearance, was wearing a floral dress. She was not wearing track pants. Something to keep in mind as we move through this crazy case. The working theory became that she had changed into the track pants, took Azaria into the vehicle, slit her throat with the nail scissors and put her body in the camera bag and then changed back into her dress to go back up to the barbecue. How do you feel about that um, theory thrown out there, Madison? No. It there gets... would be blood everywhere. She wouldn't have been able to just change her dress yeah. and go up to a barbecue. So also another thing I find interesting is that she had Aiden, their six-year-old son, with her during this entire time. Yes, she left him at the tent to go to the car, but I would think that he would be able to articulate, rather or not, she took Azaria with her to the vehicle, or if Azaria stayed in the tent with him. So I'm kind of curious, was that question asked? The couple couldn't explain the blood in the car. Both their sons had had nosebleeds in the vehicle, but that didn't really explain where the blood was in the car. And they had at one time picked up a hitchhiker who had been in a car accident and was bleeding. They took him to the hospital in their vehicle. Right? Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're like, maybe some of the blood came from that. We don't know. But remember, the blood had fetal hemoglobin in it. So this hitchhiker or even their son wouldn't have that. Right? I don't know if I trust the testing, though. Do I trust the testing? I don't trust the testing. Is this realistic testing? Can I trust this? Also, testing was not very good in the 80s, so how can we trust it? How can we trust? Well, I don't know if I can trust it. Madison's already getting frustrated, you guys. The inquest concluded that there was sufficient evidence that Lindy Chamberlain had slit her daughter's throat and that her husband was an accessory after the fact. And on February 2nd, 1982... Lindy was formally charged with the murder. 
Michael was charged with accessory after the fact. Okay. Okay. I got a lot of issues. We're going to keep going, though. They pleaded not guilty and were released on collective bail of $10,000. And, as we know, the media went crazy with this story. And it seemed like the entire country had picked sides. And I think that this case went, at this time, farther than just Australia. I'm pretty sure it was... I think it was publicized here as well. Three months before the trial, it came out that Lindy was pregnant. Yep. So September 13, 1982, the Supreme Court trial begins in Darwin. So by this time, Lindy is seven months pregnant. God, imagine sitting in a courtroom seven months pregnant. Nope. The media seemed very focused on her maternity dresses. That was like the big story every morning, what her maternity dress was going to look like. Because she made her own clothing, remember? She made a lot of colorful, frilly things from what I could see. So is, are people bothered that she's wearing colorful Yes, things? yes, people are bothered by this. I could see that. Or they're very interested in it. That would happen here, too. I mean, if somebody was dressing a particular way, people would have something to say about it, right? So the trial went like this. The prosecution believed that Lindy went to put Azaria down. She took her to the front seat of the family car, slit her throat with the nail scissors, put her body in her husband's camera case... They believed that she made up the story about the dingo. So while everyone was searching, her and Michael went to dispose of the body when they, like, took that little walk. They argued that dingoes didn't attack babies. Which was widely believed at the time. That dingoes were skittish, friendly creatures, not aggressive. But remember, we're not dealing with straight, wild dingoes. We're dealing with dingoes who have been exposed to people... So, yeah, they argued that dingoes didn't attack babies. Experts testified that the jumpsuit had been cut with scissors and not teeth. I don't know about you, but I think dingoes' teeth are very sharp. Weird, like scissors. <laughs> Weird. Also, that there was a bloody pattern that consisted with a handprint. And they said that a baby's head was too big to fit in a dingo's mouth. And no dingo hairs were found on the clothing. Yeah, they said that they were felines, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. So they also said that because the clothing was not scattered and instead was neatly piled, that the dingoes would not have done that, and they suggested that it was placed there. And they presented that the fetal hemoglobin was found in the car. The defense went like this. Azaria's death was nothing more than a tragic accident. Professors of biology took the stand and challenged the fetal hemoglobin testing. Remember, we kind of had a problem with that anyway. They also presented evidence that a dingo could in fact carry a baby by its head. They showed a picture of a dingo holding a baby doll by the head, like by the crown of the head, to which the prosecution said, oh, I guess I was wrong about that. (laughs) Well, also, I don't know if they haven't had any exposure to babies, but babies' schools are, like, not Not, hard. Not as hard, yeah. That's why you're supposed to be very gentle with a baby's head is because its skull is very soft still. Right. An expert testified that the cuts on her jumpsuit could have been caused by a dingo's teeth who have, like, a long slashing kind of motion that could cut like scissors. They attempted to discredit one of the prosecutor's experts who had provided evidence in a high-profile case that convicted three men who were later proven innocent But his testimony had been deemed incorrect in that case. And I think that one in particular had something to do with time of death. Sally Lowe also testified, remember she was at the campsite, that she had heard Azaria cry out after Lindy had put her to bed, which is what prompted Lindy to go back and check on her interrupting the dingo. 
The ranger that was at the scene also testified that he had seen the dingo tracks leading away from the tent and that he had seen what looked like a knitted material on the ground in the nearby sand dunes. This pattern was consistent with the matinee jacket that Lindy had claimed Azaria was wearing, which basically the prosecution is saying Lindy's a liar because this jacket obviously didn't exist because we've never found it. So that's one of the things that they're using to say she's a liar. A camper named Amy Whitaker had also testified that while searching was going on, Lindy and Michael had wandered off for about 15 to 20 minutes. Remember that? And the prosecution had suggested that they disposed of the body during this time, but she claimed that she had actually been the one to suggest that they take the walk. And then there's Wally Goodman who had found the clothes. He testified that the way he discovered the clothing was not the way it was when they took the pictures after the detective had mm-hmm. handled the clothing. And for the clothing, I have something to say on it. Since they were found near that layer where the family had been hiked, like had been taking photos earlier in the day, I feel like that if someone had come across these clothes and had not had any clue what was going on in the area around, if they just found baby's clothing in areas, even if it was bloody, people do weird things like pick things up and put them on trees in different areas and like set them together. Right. So we don't know that another human didn't come in contact, but basically what he's testifying to is that the way they are in the pictures that the prosecution used is not how he found them. So regardless, they weren't... Well, because the police officer touched them. Exactly. But the prosecution used those pictures as evidence. Okay. Okay? Gotcha. They also compared Lindy's hand to the alleged bloody handprint or on on the jumper. And her fingers were too long to belong to that handprint. A park ranger named Derek Roth, who had worked at the park, had remembered a family who had visited where their three-year-old had been grabbed by the head and pulled from the car by a dingo. Pulled from the car. But the defense was unable to find this family. So there's no proof other than the ranger saying that this happened, right? The prosecution claimed that they didn't believe Azaria had been wearing the matinee jacket that had left the print in the sand, which I don't know why that would be relevant, but... Michael was criticized for saying that her death was the will of God. Right, he said this kind of at the beginning, that... If she was dead, then that was the will of God. Right, so people started coming forward, criticizing him for that. I think he was criticized in the media for that. And he's like, look, I don't remember saying that, but if I did, it's probably because I do believe in the will of God. Lindy did not seem to have been suffering from any kind of postpartum depression. Some mothers who suffer from postpartum depression or postpartum psychosis, more likely, have been known to kill their children, right? So... They're basically saying she did not exhibit any kind of... Psychosis. So Yeah, any kind of proof or neglect or anything that led anybody to believe that she had been suffering from that. That she would have killed her baby. Well, that she would have killed her baby due to that condition. Oh. So the jury deliberated for six and a half hours. Yep. And on October 29th, 1982, both Lindy and Michael were found guilty. Yep. A reporter, you guys, that had been following the case actually jumped up and yelled, bastards. Because obviously he didn't believe that she was guilty. Lindy had little to no reaction and Michael seemed to be strained. Which I feel like these are not strange. If I was seven months pregnant and Mm. found guilty of murdering my missing daughter, I would just be in shock. I don't even know what I would do. Michael received an 18-month suspended sentence with a good behavior bond. Yeah, so basically, 
he didn't have to serve time in jail. He was able to go home to his children, but he had restrictions, kind of like probation. Okay. From what I understand. Okay, so the judge had told Lindy, who was now eight months pregnant, you have been found guilty of murder by verdict of a jury. There is only one sentence I can pass on you, and that sentence is you will be imprisoned with hard labor for life. Fun. Super fun. So on November 17, 1982, Lindy gave birth to a baby girl. So after giving birth, the baby was actually taken from her. They actually named her Kalia, and they said that they made up the name so there would be no speculation about its meaning. I think Lindy said something like, let them try to make something of that. So two days after Kalia's birth, Lindy was granted bail pending her appeal. She was allowed to stay at the Avondale College Center, which was a Seventh-day Adventist church education facility. So Michael had already been residing there with their sons. It was kind of in a secluded wooded area. I know it's, it's very interesting. I don't know that that seems like something that wouldn't happen here. Here, I don't think here she would be reunited with her children, even if she was out on bail. So her limited release did outrage members of the public. At this point, a poll showed that 53% of Australia thought she was guilty. So that's a good amount. That's a good amount, right? On April 19, 1983, their appeal was rejected. She was then returned to prison. In November, they appealed to the high courts and it was denied again. Lindy wrote a poem for Azaria that read, Not a day has ended with the fading of the light that I have not remembered you, Azaria. Good night. In 1984, the family whose three-year-old had been attacked by the dingo finally came forward and confirmed the attack. The ranger penned a letter to the newspaper. Which it means writing. Okay. And demanded an inquest into the evidence presented during the trial. He contradicted much of the dingo's behavior evidence. Right, because remember, he's been around these dingoes. And this is a different kind of dingo than is widely known. Which is what he said. He stated that you could not compare these dingoes to a wild dingo and that the constant exposure to humans made them unpredictable. He said that not one of us should be comfortable with this situation. Which basically, like, these dingoes are not afraid of humans like a regular dingo is because they have most likely been exposed to humans their entire lives. Right, but when the majority of the population believes that a dingo would never attack a baby, it's hard to make people understand that, I think. Not saying she's innocent, just saying. Just going by the facts here. In June of 1985, their attorney would start a media campaign and this led to the Chamberlain Innocence Committee. In response, 31 biologists signed an open letter refuting the blood evidence that Joy Kume had used. Yeah. The Blue Book was created. This was 40 pages and contained new evidence. An application for a full judicial inquiry into the case was included. The prosecution had claimed that the cuts on her clothing were from scissors, not teeth. Specialists debunked this theory showing evidence of similar cuts being made by dingo teeth. The prosecution had claimed that nine animal hairs were found on Azari's clothing were from a cat. The Blue Book clarified that when research was done, two were human, one was inconclusive, and six were canine. Yeah, so I'm not sure where the feline theory came from. That could have been a visual testing of the hair. I'm not really sure, but when further research was done, 
this is what they came up with. Mm -hmm. Not sure if they were tested in the same way. Not sure if we've moved on to different technology. I know that hair testing has been controversial for a long time based on visual comparisons only. At this time, we don't know exactly why the testing was so different. I mean, different experts too, right? You start throwing in... Also, we're like five years later. It's 1985 now. Maybe technology has changed. We don't really know. And then the stains on the vehicle that they had claimed was from arterial spray was actually a mixture of a sticky beverage and soundproofing paint that was used by the manufacturer at the time. So not blood. During the trial, Joy Kume had found fetal hemoglobin by using an anti-serum. The German manufacturer of this anti-serum said that this would not be possible and that the serum didn't exclusively determine fetal hemoglobin and would respond to other proteins as well. Okay, on November 12, 1985, the Northern Territory rejected the application. Two weeks later, they also rejected Lindy's application for early release. Yep. And then we move on to January 26, 1986. David Brett, a British traveler, was visiting Uluru National Park alone. He planned to climb the rock. It was 4 p.m. when he headed out because it was so hot he waited until a little later in the day. Mm -hmm. He was told by a ranger that camping was prohibited on the land, which I think he planned to do anyway. But at 7.40 p.m., two local indigenous people saw him climbing in a forbidden area and alerted the authorities. They actually set out to remove him from the mountain, but they were unable to find him. A week later, a tourist was hiking at the base of Uluru when they came across David's body. He had fallen 200 meters to his death and his remains had been scavenged by animals. Yep. On February 2nd, park rangers conducted a search of the area. They were attempting to recover all of his bones. The site was 150 meters from where Wally Goodman had found Azaria's clothing years earlier. There were many dingo layers in the area and David's backpack had been ravaged by wild animals. So torn yeah. apart, basically. And everything was kind of scattered about. One ranger saw something buried slightly in the sand. And when he bent to inspect it, it was a white knitted baby jacket. It had stiff sleeves, a loose button hanging from the neck by a thread. Which this was a big deal because Lindy had always maintained that the baby was wearing a white knitted matinee jacket the day she went missing. And now they've found it. Do they ever search the, like, any dingo layers? Yeah, but there were so many of them. They, they weren't, they didn't even, they couldn't really. Okay, okay. The family lawyer found out about the find from the press and had immediately filed for an urgent request to the jacket for identification. Right. And he, he heard about it from the press, like a tip from the press, not on the news or anything, but somebody tipped him off saying, hey, they have this jacket but they're not talking about it. On February 5, the jacket was shown to Lindy and she broke down in tears. She was able to positively identify the jacket as belonging to her daughter. Remember, it had that distinct yellow lining too. During the murder trial, the prosecution had relied heavily on there being no jacket. This proved that Lindy wasn't lying about the jacket and also explained the lack of saliva on the jumper because she would have been wearing the jacket. Twelve days after the jacket was discovered, a royal commission into the case was announced. 
the chief minister of the Northern Territory directed that Lindy be released on remission, allowing her unrestricted access to legal advice. On February 7, 1987, she was released on remission and reunited with her children. Her daughter was now four years old. That's so sad. That is so sad. Especially having a daughter who's about that age. I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. As you can imagine, though, the media and public had a very strong reaction to her release. Some outraged. Some overjoyed. Yep. A letter published in the Sydney Morning Herald stated, It is not a question of whether Lindy Chamberlain has paid her debt to society but how society can possibly pay its debt to Lindy. So obviously that person believed she was innocent. On June 2nd, 1987, a royal commission recommends clearing the Chamberlains of all guilt. Justice Moling determined that the parents had nothing to do with the death of their daughter. They were granted a pardon, but remember, a pardon does not officially clear them of guilt. Yeah. It just releases them from paying for that guilt, right? Lindy stated that she was not interested in a pardon for something she didn't do and wanted her conviction reversed. And on September 15, 1988, their convictions were quashed. In 1992, they sought $4 million in restitution for the pain, suffering, and loss of wages for their wrongful convictions. In 1992, the Attorney General announced that they would receive $1.3 million in compensation. Yeah, so $396,000 of that was just to cover their legal fees. $19,000 was for their car being dismantled for evidence. And then the rest was their restitution, basically. So that's kind of how it was broken down. December 13th, 1995... A coroner, John Loudis, cannot determine the cause of Azaria's death. Her death was deemed as undetermined, and they could not say for sure that it was a dingo, but they agreed that Lindy and Michael had nothing to do with her disappearance. In January 2004, Frank Cole came forward stating that he had shot a dingo in Yulabru in 1980 and that Azaria had been in its jaws. He said that he was with his friends at the time. I think that there were three of them. And that they had taken her away from the dingo, but she was already dead. He said that his friends had planned to bury the body in Melbourne. Keep in mind, this was after a movie called Through My Eyes was released. This claim was eventually dismissed. So he actually called the producer of the movie of course. to confess this. Yep. And this is the movie, so Through My Eyes was actually a book written by Lindy Chamberlain. Mm -hmm. And it was later changed to, what, Dingo's Got My Baby or something like that. She does say that the movie is about 95% accurate. And then in 2005, a woman came forward claiming to be Azaria. She had grown up in foster care and claimed that she had memories of being carried in the mouth of a dingo. We see this happen a lot in cases where people kind of come out of the woodwork. In June 2012, the coroner handed down her finding on the latest inquest. She was satisfied that Azaria had been killed by a dingo. An amended death certificate was finally made. That is basically the case of Azaria. Now, upon my research to this case, like I said, we came into this case not knowing anything. And we're not saying... That she's guilty or that she's innocent. What I will say is that I don't think the evidence was strong enough to convict her in the first place. I 
I also, I also agree with that. I, I feel like it became a trial of specialists and I feel like you can find any specialist to say anything that you want on any topic. So when you've got 20 different specialists that are all saying their own theory of things, I don't find that reliable. That's my piece on the situation. What's your opinion, by the way? Um, I do think that it is odd how the parents reacted. I think it's odd that the parents left. I think that that's kind of all strange. Which I agree. People are already questioning them. Yeah. And then you add in the odd behavior. Like, if they had behaved like people expected grieving parents to behave, I think this case might have gone very Very differently. differently. Okay. Don't get mad at us if you disagree or have a difference of opinion because we know there's, it's very split out there for what people think. Yeah. I'd be curious now to know how the nation feels about it. Yeah, like now if it's still... Right. So if you're from Australia, we really want to know how do Australians feel about this case? Yeah. Because we know how Americans don't... I mean, Americans are pretty ignorant about the actual facts of this case. I will say that in 2019, an event happened that maybe swayed me a little bit more... Towards the dingo side. Towards the dingo side. And here is that event. So 60 Minutes did an episode on this. You can actually go and find it. It's from 2019. But it goes like this. Luke and Sarah Allister went on holiday at Fraser Island, which is a very popular... It's beautiful, actually. I would love to go to Fraser Island. But they were there with their 14-month-old son, named Hunter. They also had their daughter. I think she was four and her name was Harper. They were at the One Tree campsite. They went to bed around 1030. They packed all of their food away. So they were experienced campers and they climbed into bed. So they had a camper van. So their tent's not on the ground. Their tent is up on their truck. So it's pretty high off the ground. I would say at least chest level for me. Based on the pictures that I saw and based on the 60-minute episode. So around midnight, they heard their baby cry out. They heard Hunter cry out. They were in the front of the tent and both kids were in the back of the tent. But they're all in one tent, right, of this caravan. His cry went immediately from inside the tent to outside the tent. So they hear him cry and the cry is inside the tent. And then immediately it sounds like he's outside. Of the tent, right? This seriously is freaking terrifying, you guys. I think his mother said something like, the baby's out of the tent or something to that effect. And when the father got out of the tent, he saw a dingo had his baby by the back of the head and was dragging him into the bush. So the dog is actually facing the dad at this point and he has the baby He's in his mouth, looking at the dad. He's looking at the dad while walking backwards and dragging him into the bushes. He said it just seemed unbelievable. Like, he couldn't believe that this was happening. He ran towards the dingo, and when he got towards the dingo, he dropped the baby, and that's when the dad realized that there was so much blood. The family was soon surrounded by a pack of dingoes. So it's pitch black out. The dad says basically that he saw at least, I think, four or five dingoes, but he could hear them moving all around him. Mm -hmm. He felt like they were coming in to attack or try to take his son from him. 
They called for help, but reception was really spotty. The 911 call, you guys, is awful. I will play a snippet of it for you. The dingo has dragged him from the camper van. Okay. We'll need an ambulance. We'll need a helicopter. The baby's dying. Um, he's all really wet through with our blood. Um, Have you got something to control yeah, the bleeding? Um, my son-in-law's got a towel pressed against the back of his head. Sorry, are you there? They're coming, they're coming, darling, they're coming. They're coming. It's all right. He's not going to die. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right, darling. How old is the little one? I'm coming. The dingo's everywhere. You can hear the baby crying. Oh, my gosh. You can hear her cutting in and out. The end kills me where she's like trying to assure her daughter that the baby's not going to die. The baby, he does survive, by the way. They get in the car and they drive him to the helipad where a helicopter meets them. The, the parents say basically that all they can think about is that they don't want him to stop crying because they think if he stops crying in this car ride, then it's because he's died. Yeah. Like that's how much blood there is. And I will post pictures of this, you guys. He had a fractured skull, the teeth marks in the back of his Horrendous. Horrendous, you guys. But imagine what if that dingo had gotten away with that little boy before the dad could stop him. And this is a much bigger child. They actually say that the dingo was able to get up. He was able to nose his nose in and push back the zipper of, and it's a big zipper too. It's like a thick zipper in order to grab onto the baby's head and drag him out. If that can happen, I have a lot more faith that a dingo could could have taken Azaria. Taken a smaller baby out of a tent on the ground that's already opened. I mean, yeah. So judge judge for yourselves, but that's basically the story of Azaria Chamberlain and how we sort of I mean, we don't really know how we feel about I don't know how I feel about it. I mean I am always an extra suspicious person, but I also, the idea of an innocent person going to jail, like, terrifies me to my core. So, if I'm going to send somebody to jail, then I'm going to need to know, beyond a reasonable doubt, that they're guilty. They actually found, somebody found and leaked the notes from some of the jurors from this case. Mm -hmm. And the women jurors actually were the harshest on Lindy. They are the ones that thought she was guilty the most. Interesting. I think there were three female jurors. Anyway, yeah, that was the case. Let us know what you think. Don't yell at us if you have a difference of opinion. We have a lot of Australian listeners, and we mean no disrespect if you disagree with us. We'd love to know what you think. When did you learn about this case? What was happening? Did you learn about it from the media? Did you learn about it from your friends? Were you guys talking about it at school? Where does your opinion start and where did where did it stem from? We we were really curious. I also want to know how Australia feels about it now. Me too. After the fact. Absolutely. Like- Me too. Also, if you want to dive further down the rabbit hole on this, you for sure can. There are so many, so many sources out there about this case. Just look for the ones that are credible. But the podcast Case Files did an episode on this. I love Case Files. It's an Australian podcast, so I'm assuming that he had 
at least access to more information. And he, I love Case Files. He does an amazing job. It's very soothing. Also, the Evil Angels book, which remember that's Lindy's book about the situation. There's that book. And then there's also the movie. We can check those out. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you listen on Apple, please give us a review. If you don't listen on Apple, please still go and give us a review. Can you if you don't? Oh, you can download it, I think, onto an Android or a Mac or or onto a, a computer. I don't even know. But anyway. Yeah. Leave us a review. Share us on your stories. Follow we'll share us. you on our stories. Yeah. Follow us on Instagram at Lost in the Woods Podcast. Like us on Facebook. Go back and listen to other episodes if you haven't. Yeah. And thanks for listening. And we'll see. Let us know about our sound this week. Oh, yeah. Let us know what you think about our sound this week. Because we're just trying different things to see if we can get better Trying a new thing. We don't know. We don't know. Let us know. Yeah. If it's terrible, just tell us. We'll go back to the fridge room and we'll we'll deal with that. Maybe we'll just take everything out of the fridge and freezer and just permanently unplug it. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But let us know. Throw the fridge at the back door. I don't know. Yeah, let us know. But yeah, thanks for listening and we'll see you guys next week. Yep. Bye. So the case that I would compare this to in America would be the Jean Benet Ramsey case. And that case, oh my gosh, is crazy. That's the little beauty queen that was murdered. She went missing and was murdered. And rather or not her parents are responsible yep. is huge here in America. So. Uh, that case divided here and and I feel like was criticized specialists people so passionate about yeah the guilt or innocent of these parents because of this little girl it it was crazy so that's the case that I would compare it to if you haven't heard of that case look it up I just had fresh homemade banana bread that I made yesterday And I don't know if this is not a thing anymore, but I asked my 11-year-old to go next door and get some baking soda. Maddie was FaceTiming with me and also pressuring her because for some reason the baking soda, the entire box of baking soda is gone. I blame it on the one underneath me, the kid underneath me. Yeah, so we're pretty sure it was used in some sort of science experiment. We're not sure, but it's gone and we have all of our ingredients for banana bread sitting on the counter ready to go, including peeled overripe bananas that have been in the fridge all week long. So we're kind of, we. I mean, we need to make banana bread at this point. The 11 year old is like, I'm not going next door. And by the way, we have very nice neighbors. Yeah. Either go talk to Carson's mom or you get to go talk to the British neighbors. Both very nice neighbors, right? Very nice neighbors. We gave her the choice. You can go to one or you can go to the other, whichever one you're more comfortable with. Which, by the way, Maddie used to go get ingredients all the time. Yeah, I used to. Because we used to actually make cookies. I don't, I try to make healthier things these days, but we used to make cookies when she was little. But she refuses to go. So then I'm like, hey, Phoenix, you want to go next door and get some baking soda? And she's like, sure. Should I bring a bowl? And I'm like, yeah, probably. She goes, she gets a bowl. She also gets the teaspoon, because we only need one teaspoon of baking soda. She also gets the teaspoon out of the drawer and puts it into the bowl so that they can measure it when she gets there. 
I didn't send her alone. Cordy did end up going with her, but it was quite the process. It's a smaller room. It's a bunker. So bunkers yeah. can't be big, right? I which mean, was my bedroom at some point, which I see as borderline child abuse, but it's fine. <laughs> so basically it was Madison's bedroom because as everybody knows, or maybe doesn't know, depending on how long you've been with us, I have a shit ton of children or I have a crap ton of children. I think you should leave the shit ton of please, <laughs> for me. Do it for me. For me and how I hate the anti-swearers of the world. So originally when we moved into this house, we were short one bedroom for every child to have their own room. Hence the room built in to the garage, which Madison lived in. It's the bunker. Well, it's the bunker now. So Mm. we we won't go into detail about that. I'm sure you all already think we're crazy. But we have a bunker now that used to be Madison's bedroom. There's no windows But it's cozy, and we could survive in here for a long time, probably. 